Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another sharp special on History Hack. We are very excited today because Jason has been trying to get this one off the ground for a long, long time because we are going to be talking all about Sharp's rifles, which of course is Jason's favourite hour on Sharp. I think. Uh, and he's got some of his chosen men brethren with him. So we've got Lyndon Davis with us. Lyndon, do you remember anything? Um, no. No. <laughs> form. Uh, how are you, Lyndon? We've been having a discussion before we came on air that you keep asking this like a dutiful, polite British person when everyone's answer is rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I can, I'm not allowed to swear, am I? Yeah, it's yeah. fine. We have the the uh, occasional naughty word on history hack. Um, yeah, we're okay as a family. We're doing all right. Um, life's shit, but we're doing all right. So uh, yeah, I think everyone's blanket answer is enough now. Please, let's move on away from COVID. Uh, Paul Trussell is with us from Southwest London. Hello. Hello. How are you right? doing? Uh, you've been you, you've been constructive. Your art is. Uh, taking off and some I love the collection of chosen men prints you're doing there's Jason holding up the uh, mm-hmm. Harris one Jason after a little bit of tension there I think yeah um, yeah no it, I mean since the first lockdown really oh that's one of mine yeah Very good. That's, you, isn't it? that's a lino print guys available Available. We'll tweet pictures when we send the tweets out for this episode so that people can see. Yeah, all right. You're on, yeah. No, that's that's um that's been keeping me going really, making art um that that's just two of my little sidelines really, the sharp pictures, but I've got a little studio now in my house and uh produce quite a lot of um artwork, folk, you know, paintings and etchings and lino prints and all that kind of stuff and um i have a website now paultrussell.com <laughs> if you're interested in looking at my art you can go to paultrussell.com and uh and check it out and there's also lots of um lots of acting photos and stuff on there as well it is brilliant on there we also have with us tim bentink who is of course captain murray tim hello hello hi You've got uh, plenty of musical instruments in the background there. Are you uh, getting through lockdown with your guitar? Um, it's been like this since about 1982. My room hasn't changed at all. It's, uh, it's <laughs> all the various different ways of trying to earn money, writing and music and things like that. So it's all represented on things that are hanging up behind me. Um, uh, yes, no, it's, uh, I mean, even to the state, you've got old CD-ROMs here of computer programs from the 90s, which have which gathered dust and, I keep meaning to go through. Um, yeah, no, it's really nice to see everybody. Everyone doesn't seem to have aged at all. We all seem to be eternally young. It's what acting does to us. It keeps us young. It's lovely. It does. It's like magic. And we also have with us, and Jason's been very excited about this, we have the wonderful Julian Fellows with us. I say Julian Kitchener Fellows because oh, Kitchener's my hero ever since I was a tiny, tiny child, uh, like the sad World War One historian that I am. Hello, Julian. Hello. Hi. 
So Major done it in rifles, but you returned later on as well, didn't you? I returned, and only I think only I and Tony Haygarth played two parts in the series. One, one um, more person, and, Julian. Peter Hugo Daly played two parts. Oh, did he? And is yeah. he still going? Because Tony's dead, I think. Yes, Tony's dead. Peter Hugo Daly is, but he's still around. Okay. Um, I mean, I I loved the Prince Regent. It was quite different though because. The Dunnet, I had to go out to the armpits in Faropol and generally lay about in, in um, uh, you know, Russia uh, and go to Livadia and all of that, all of which I loved, actually, and I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, but the job itself was basically being crossed with Sharp and then getting cut across the middle and dying. I don't remember it making any other demands on me, whereas the Prince Regent was a better part but I never had to go further from London than the Richmond's house. Uh, and so that wasn't quite the same. <laughs> There's no partying in the Ukraine. No, I loved the whole Ukraine stuff. I loved all that and the, and the whole sort of crazy caviar thing and Brown Cox and all of it. It was hilarious. <laughs> so were you, Julian. I'm, 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 you know, I'll go, I'll go. After Marcus does his bit, I'll do my little intro as well. But definitely... Um, um, you you experienced Portugal and England and uh, Ukraine, so you were all all trying to get out these three lines, which was about all I had, and I said them again and again in different terrains. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, there we are. We got it in the can in the end. It was such a drama, though, wasn't it? I remember all that and the whole business of the football match and Paul's wife and all all of that whole saga is now sort of gradually resurfacing in my brain. Okay, we also have with us our Napoleonic historians, because uh, we're way outside my wheelhouse, so we have the wonderful Zach right with us. You right, Zach? I'm all right, mate. How are you doing? Because we were up until 1.30 this morning <laughs> planning a post-pandemic trip to Waterloo. <laughs> you left at 1.30. We were still there at 3, almost. Wow. Um, we decided to have... We decided to pretend we were actually in a pub together. So uh, a number of us from History Hack were sitting on Zoom like Saturdays in our front room, just pretending we were on a night out, basically. Uh, and Marcus was with us, but Marcus went to bed early because he's sensible. Yeah. Um, I left at a really sensible time because I had to get up this morning in adult and do some training courses with the army, which was... Obviously, not as much fun as the pub with you guys. Also, Princess Marcus needs her beauty sleep, doesn't she? Looking this good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, let's uh, tell Tim and, and Julian that Marcus is actually the you deputy curator or the curator at Apsley House, which the the manager of Apsley House. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. Fantastic. So he has yeah. a very good Wellingtonian perspective to everything. We have uh, done some marvellous ones where Marcus is skiving at work and uh, he's hiding behind a bust of, I was edit this, don't worry, uh, hiding behind a bust of Napoleon or Wellington while he's supposed <laughs> to be working at Apsley House doing one of these. And um, as ever, we're going to kick off, Marcus um, is going to do his little history bit where he explains the episode in context and tells us exactly whereabouts in history we are. So this has become a thing now. Paul's looking very confused. This is like the last couple we've done this, Paul, and it really works because it tells the listeners exactly where we are in the conflict and what's going on. So Sharp's Rifles, take it away, Marcus. 
Thank you. Sharps Rifles puts us right near the beginning of the Peninsula War, but not actually at the start. Bunnacornwell has done something slightly strange and skipped about three battles in a short conflict, uh, battles of Relisa and Vimero uh, most notably, and put us at the kind of dramatic retreat to Corunna, which was the uh, fateful expedition of Sir John Moore, who ends up uh, dying. He introduces us actually in this book, as it's first chronologically before the, the Indian books, to a scarred rifleman who might be from London or might be from Yorkshire, but he's scarred and he might have dark hair and he might be blonde. And uh, he comes across a ragtag bag of uh, rifles. But in the film is a slightly dramatic incident where then Lord Arthur Wellesley, not yet Wellington, uh, has a bit of a run-in with some Frenchmen who I think have the opening line of the films of on and they charge in with sabres and he shoots three of them in a minute and clubs one of them and uh, is overseen by Major Hogan and uh, obviously Wellesley himself and saves his life and does him a bad turn of giving him a field commission. It's always then leads to a slight mythology that Sharp is the only man commissioned from the ranks in the, all of Wellington's army, which is not really the case, especially in the rifles. Uh, it's one of these myths that has gone on that he's the only one, but it's fantastic history, of course. He's then given a command of the chosen men, who for real life context were effectively Lance Corporals, uh, but in this uh, dr dramatization, they are put as kind of like a little special forces squad attached to Major uh, Dannett's uh, command, uh, where they go off and do extra special scouting missions. And what leads in the book towards the retreat to Corona and eventually trying to raise the standard um, of San, uh, St. James, they uh, try to show that they've got an extra special spirit within the Spanish resistance. Uh, and this is all played out between the Spanish and the Anfrancisados, who are the, like kind of the, you could call them collaborators. And uh, it gives us some beautiful moments where we get uh, Captain Murray dying. Of course, I better do it. Oh no. On a sharp sword. <laughs> is, that, is that the actual one? Is that um, the sword? We haven't told his girlfriend how much oh. it actually cost you either. She doesn't <laughs> listen to the podcast, it's fine. But yeah, so no, he has to wave that about at every opportunity to get his money's worth. God love yeah. it. And so, uh, and then we have, we have a great introduction to Sharp and all of his adventures with his Chosen Man squads. Speaking of, Jason, do you want to add anything? Yes, I, I just want to say that... Um, a lot of people know that this is my favorite episode and it's also for what's in the episode for also what went on behind the scenes um so the guys on the on the show today are of all are sharp for me they're like they have never left my mind's eye of sharp julian and tim came out on the plane i believe on the first time right julian i know tim did yeah. right so and they were there at the very end as well at portugal and they went through all the various things and um the first I wasn't in Portugal. I was only I was only in the Crimea. You were only in the Crimea. Are you sure? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. I so died, you did the I scene. Died, I died twice. <laughs> once with Paul and once with Sean. But I remember we were in the Crimea together because once yeah. when we were lying in this tent waiting to be used on on sort of daybeds, and the head of wardrobe came towards me and she said to me uh, that she'd been talking with these two assistants and she said to me. 
they want to know if you are of noble blood. And I said, why? And, and she said, because if you are, they will darn your socks. <laughs> and so, uh, and so I, I said, well, Tim's the man you want to go to. He can have his socks darned. And that was that. I loved that, having survived the revolution. I'd forgotten that. I remember now. Yeah. Helen, was that Helen Kramova, our, our cousin lady? Yes, that's right. Yes. But Tim, you were in Portugal because the scene where you discovered Sean and Dara fighting, that was shot in Portugal, where you both arrived with Lyndon. Lyndon says, anyone seen the officer? And then you guys come in and find the brawling. That was in Portugal, Tim, I, I, I'm afraid to tell you. I, I, I have no recollection of going to Portugal. <laughs> <laughs> Lyndon's got a friend who remembers nothing. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's vindication, Lyndon. I'm quite certain that wasn't. I mean, it might have been that, you know, that my point of view shot was shot in Portugal and that you, that, that you come, came round on me and I was still in the Crimea. But I, as far as I know, I never went to Portugal. You were in Turkey. Yeah, no, well. you definitely did. You definitely, because that scene where you, Murray and um, Benting, uh, Murray, Murray and um, Dunnett arrive at the barn. That's absolutely on the far west coast of Portugal, just above Lisbon, where we were. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because we shot it first in August at a place called Shufut Kali, boiling hot in that little Jewish settlement. Uh, it was all stone, remember? It was a little hovel. Was oh, a little hovel. Yeah. So that's where we first shot the scene. That was all scrapped. I've got photographs of Julian sitting there. I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've got, I've got some, exactly. Julian, there's a picture of me with Julian behind me. In it. Yeah. And then, so I don't think you shot the death scene there. I think it was only shot in Portugal. Because I've got a picture of you, the one I put on Facebook, of you covered in blood, eating a sandwich. Yeah. My this very is... first walk into Simferopol was with Julian, who gave the most wonderful running commentary of everything. Were you there, Lyndon? Uh, no, I just remember, I remember that the, the, something I remember. Of yeah. Julian. Were you there, Paul? Where he gave the sort of... Um, anyway, so we... Oh, we... oh Linda, what did you remember? Sorry. <laughs> Natasha's like, focus quick before Lyndon forgets again. I've forgotten it, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so... Ah, we, it, obviously. It was our first <laughs> encounter with loads of money changers. But I do remember I was in, in the throes of breaking up in a relationship and Julian was really probing me on it. Like, tell me a bit more. How was it? And what are the circumstances? And obviously he was writing a soap opera, I guess. And that's why he was uh, uh, probing. But um, the one thing I mentioned this to Julian uh, in a little email, we encountered this thing called kvass, which is a fermented drink made from bread. I that explains the memory loss. <laughs> yeah, totally. And um, we were all like really scared. And, and, but Julian wasn't because when he was a child living in Africa, his mother made him drink this orange drink concoction from the street vendors. And from then on, he's had no tummy troubles whatsoever. So, <laughs> Only so from water. I've had other tummy troubles. Oh, okay. but, but <laughs> I remember that. I'm like a good boy. <laughs> I, I seem to remember drinking quite a lot of it. Well done, well done. Yes, it sorted you out. And Tim Bentink, Tim Bentink. Um, I had read, I had read Rifles, and I read um, uh, uh, Records of Ralph Harris as part of my research for the part. And we got to the read-through uh, St. Saviour's Church back in July yeah. 26 of 1992. I, I do remember that very well. Yes, and I was talking to you about it, and you really ignited my my passion for the novels because you had read them all. He said. Yeah. 
because I, I read it as research, my, my character didn't appear in the books. It was like, uh, but Tim, you really ignited my love for the books. Yeah, and I mean, that, not, the, the thing about it was I had. I mean, I, I read all the Hornblower book, books. The, I'm, I'm actually doing it again. Richard Woodman books, the, um, uh, Nathaniel Drinkwater, Patrick O'Brien. All, it's all the sailing ones that I've been into. And then I got into Sharp and I read, I'd read all the Sharp books, completely loved them. So when I got the call to come and audition for it, it was like heaven. Um, and, I, and then I got the part and it was even more heaven and then turned up and yeah, I kind of knew, you know, I knew all the characters already. They walked into the church, everybody doing the read through. Oh, that's you, that's you, that's you. That's you. It was fantastic. And I mean, it was, you know. It me with the bug. Oh, well, that, that's great. I mean, it, well, you know, I, you guys, you know, The Chosen Men, it was, you know, it was such a part of your life and, and you know, you nearly died doing it. I mean, I, you know, really, really. But just for me and Julian, you know, we were there for a bit and we were, as you say, kind of the pathfinders. We were the, we were the first lot to kind of go and do it. And it was one of the greatest adventures of my life. I'm, I'm, and I really regretted dying. Um, you know, <laughs> and not being allowed to come back. I kept saying to them, look, I can grow a beard um, and come back as, you know, as a Russian. I come back as Russian with beard and come back. They will never know I am Captain Murray. <laughs> and uh, and they, of course they didn't. But oh, fellows, of course, got the... I got was allowed, yes, I was allowed to rise from the dead <laughs> and return in a different guise. Yeah. But I always enjoyed my death. I remember that, that I had to come up to the horse with the guy with the sword and he then did that and then everything stopped and I was put into a different uniform top with a slash across the top into which someone had gone to a butcher and acquired a whole lot of entrails of a pig and they were then pushed down into this slice across the front of my jacket so that they were all spilling out when the camera came around. Yeah. <laughs> it was rather effective actually. I, uh, uh, I, I wrote an autobiography which is called um, Being David Archer and Other Unusual Ways of Earning a Living. And one of the, there's a chapter in it called Sharp's Rifles. Um, and I, can I just read you a paragraph of this, which is to do exactly that, with, to do duck with death. <clears throat> the adventures that followed. Oh, oh, sorry, we were transported by a minibus to Simprothal Town Centre, immediately dubbed Simply Awful, a faceless hotel looking out onto washing lines. Welcome to Crimea. The adventures that followed made up for it. I was soon facing a cavalry charge of 20 Cossacks dressed up as French hussars, swords drawn coming at me at full gallop, led by the guy who was supposed to slash me across the chest. He was a Scot on horseback, uh, and I imagined therefore spurred on by acts of woad-painted Sassanac-hating frenzy. The camera crew was safely tucked behind strongly built wooden barriers, and I was in front of them, alone with a sword. No acting required here then. Having been sliced, he actually missed me about, by about six inches. I had to stagger midst the onrushing cavalry and collapse on the hill, whence to be carried off to die by Jason, who has very muscular but bony shoulders. And, <laughs> and you do, you've got a kind of a bit there, you've got really bony, and I remember you pulled me over your back and you were desperate to take me up the hill, and I'm, you know, six foot three, and you were coming like that, and all I could feel was his bloody bones sticking to me. <laughs> Could have been your cross belt as well. Uh, you had to. But I have bony shoulders. You're right. All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was wondering recently because people always talk about Sharp and his sword, but Sharp doesn't buy his sword. He doesn't choose his sword. He's given the sword by me by by you. So yeah. were you given any sort of backstory on that? Because it's such an unusual. Because it's a heavy cavalry sword. It's it's so impractical for hand to hand combat on foot. 
that's why it's like famous infamous so how long did you how many episodes did he carry it for did he carry it from then on yes yeah, so that, that's it he carries that sword from then on he breaks it in sharp sword uh-huh. and harper makes him a new one from a cuirassier heavy cavalry sword french heavy cavalry sword but right. i think actually he gets his old one back anyway um from the prop department <laughs> prop department magic anyway so yeah, it becomes a huge part of like Sharp's personality. He's referred to as a tall, scarred officer with a very long, impractical, heavy sword in, yeah, in every yeah, 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 yeah. of the books. But he didn't choose it. You no. had. <laughs> well, I turned up, and you know, they they went to the uh, to the costume department, and they gave me the costume, and to the props department, they gave me the sword. That um, that, that was it, you know. And oh, yeah, I think there's, uh, there's a whole backstory to Captain Murray, the the legend of rising Captain Murray that's never been told. Well, not really, because there isn't that much more of him in the books. I mean, there is a bit more. He does feature a bit more in the books, but not to the extent of knowing, you know, that the sword was handed down to him by his great-grandfather with, you know, all that kind of thing. None, none, there isn't any of that. At all. No. I will say, Tim, that, that it, 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 you are present, because that scene, and brilliantly acted, by the way, is probably one of the best scenes in the whole 15 episodes. And, and A, it's, it, you, you set, it sets everything up by saying, Sharp, you will be hated by the posh people, and you'll be hated by the oiks because you are now an officer. Yeah. Um, get Patrick Harper on your side. Yeah. Two. And here's my sword. I mean, so that's got- three things that completely set up the character and, and says- stay, stay with us the whole. So in many ways, you, you know, the spirit of Murray uh, carries on through because of that scene, because of how well. And the fact that you say bloody silly place to die and then die. I mean, yeah. how brilliant the timing of that. I mean, well, I, I know. I mean, it's, that's... <laughs> I remember he said, well, so you'll think I'm a proper officer. And yes. I say, no, so they'll think I liked you. Yes, oh, beautifully um, delivered. And then, and then in the script, it goes, it goes, bloody silly way to die. He dies, which is kind of weird because you've got the energy and the thought to say bloody silly place to die as you're expiring. Um, and, you know, being filmed, you haven't got the time that would actually take, which would be a kind of a good five minutes of kind of, expiring no it's you know come on get a move on we've only got 30 minutes here um die um and so then i did and there's a question that came up that you sent me with an email yeah there's a couple of questions about we'll get um, to it tim we'll get to it yeah it's alex wyman i really liked his because i think he was quite small when it came out and he said as a (laughs) child when sharp came out i remember how dead you looked and thinking how long did he have to hold his breath for or he actually pondered whether they did kill you for effect. <laughs> um, he said, do actors have to practice holding their breath and keeping their eyes open? <laughs> well, I, I know this is a lovely answer. I mean, the thing about that is, as we all know, I'm sure we've all died on stage and that's always difficult because you usually die after a battle, you know, after a fight. And so you have to die on stage and then lie there in front of the audience and you just, you know, you're exhausted. So you're, you're breathing like mad and you've got to kind of pretend not to, but on, on screen. Um, they're only on your face. And I think, I mean, I've, I, when I, I looked at it, when it came out, I think, I think they froze frame. Um, on, and that's why it looks so dead, that you go, you turn like that, you keep your eyes open, and then they actually freeze the frame so that it becomes a still. And that gives that impression of, of, of total death. I'm not sure that I was good enough. I couldn't to see that. I, I didn't tell that. I couldn't tell that. <laughs> well, there was <laughs> that Alex, one little person that was scarred for life watching it. Uh, yeah. yeah it's, it's the idea that I actually saying, was but, dead. So it wasn't a wasted effort. <laughs> <laughs> um, the night before we left for our first shooting day, which was at Apethorpe Manor, Lyndon, myself and Paul, we went and got uh, sandwiches at Marks and Spencer's and we went and sat at my house watching the Olympics, waiting 
to take uh, the train to the coach to Apethorpe Manor. So all of those memories are just so indelibly intertwined with my, that early period of Sharp. So I'm really happy with everyone who's here today. Brilliant. And we have, as usual, got lots of questions from listeners. We've just given Tim one of his. Actually, someone, uh, more than one person, flagged up that you have Napoleonic ancestry, don't you, in William Cavendish Bentinck? Well, that, I mean, it's quite understandable that they should get it wrong, but that is, it's not my family. It's a different branch of the family, but I do, um, not him. Mm. But there's um, a chap called Major, um, uh, Je there's uh, General Sir Henry Bentinck, who, who led the Coldstream Guards uh, across the Alma, and there's a painting of him. In fact, I was trying to find it on Google yesterday. I can't find it. Um, and that was the weird thing, that there we were um, in the tent um, with the Russian army who were playing extras about five miles up the road from where my direct ancestor, in fact, he's a, he's a, a, a great, great uncle, uh, great, great, great uncle, um, did, you, you know, was, <laughs> was doing the real thing. And here we were playing at it. Um, and yeah, my ancestor was just up the road doing the thing for real, but not, it's not Cavendish Bentinck, it's a different one. I do love as well that um, some Dave Barraclough wrote in and said, what does it feel like dying in something where Sean Bean actually survives? Well, I, I'm sorry, sorry, I'm not going to monopolize the conversation here. Let's go to people. But there, is a, there is a little story to that in, in that um, years later, I, I had three recalls to play Boromir in Lord of the Rings. Um, which, um, and it was, I think it was down to between me and, and, and Sean. Um, and if you look at the scene where he, uh, Boromir, dies, he needs like, he's cut, he's got foul arrows in him, like a hedgehog with all his arrows in him. And he dies, and he's, he died, it, I, I seem to remember, this ages ago, but I seem to remember thinking, you nicked my death, you bastard. Because he kind of goes, I'm, I'm going to die now. Uh, and, got, uh, and he does a little head turn, which is nicked. From Murray, I think. I think he's, <laughs> he stole my death. The past. <laughs> Imitation is flattery. Well done, yeah, that, go. right? <laughs> uh, there's a brilliant one for Julian, um, because obviously you're you're an amazing writer as well as an actor. And uh, my, I had to shoo my mother from the room. And actually, my co-host Alina is marginally excited that the man who brought the world down to Abbey is on our Zoom this morning. Um, but. They were asking, um, how did your time in Sharp influence your writing? Have bits of Sharp um, and bits of the experience worked their way into anything else that you've done? Uh, I don't think you can say that specifically in that way. I mean, I think having been an actor is very, very helpful to being a writer. Because particularly when you're a sort of second banana actor, which is all I ever was, uh, you have to make bricks without straw for so many years and you've been given so many dud scripts to try and breathe life into that you have a kind of instinct for what is sayable and what isn't sayable uh, and what needs fixing what you can just about get away with and I think all of that stuff comes into play when you're actually writing for other people. Sharp really for me uh, was one of my first experiences of being in what felt like a club because of all the dramas at the beginning, uh, although uh, neither Tim or I were, were particularly big parts in it, but nevertheless, we were much more involved than you would normally be playing a role of that size. Yeah. So I've always remembered it with some affection. Uh, and, I, and I sort of got interested in Sharp. And then I went on, because we know Bernard Cornwell, we've seen him a bit, 
in Charleston since then, where he lives half the year, I think. Uh, and so I got kind of involved. To the extent, I may say, of today bringing the sword that my own ancestor was presented only 12 years later at the Battle of Navarino in 1827. Marcus is mortally excited right and, now. And he started out serving under Nelson. So he was uh, in all this and he was uh, Admiral Sir Thomas Fellow. So uh, it's quite nice to be reminded that all of us uh, had links with this period and that we are only the descendants of our forebears, all of us. And I, I quite like being reminded of that. There was a great question from Rob Howlett who said as well, is there any of the episodes that you watch, the sharp ones, where you think, I'd like to rewrite that and I'd do this and this, and have you ever thought about one that you, you would attack with your pen? Um, I've always wanted to write something about the Prince Regent because I find him a kind of tragicomic character who's never really been mined for anything but ridicule. And, and I think there is a slightly more interesting story to be told about him. Uh, but no, I mean, mainly when I watch myself on screen, I have to cover my face with two hands uh, until I've gone off. <laughs> so uh, it's not tremendously informative. I only really enjoy watching the episodes I'm not in. I have to say as well that I'd, I have written a book and I'm researching more on George V. And usually when you go to archives, you're always looking over your shoulder at what the person next to you's got, because it might be more interesting than what you've got. It's like the grass is always greener. But it's the one where it's never the case for me at Windsor Castle is when I see the poor people with the Prince Regent's boxes and letters and just think, <laughs> rather you than me. I know, it's, but it's interesting. I mean, he and Charles I made the two greatest contributions to the Royal Collection. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, and, you know, there are plenty of kings who've done less than he did, but he just did have what Nanny would call an unfortunate personality. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's been paying for it ever since, really. Yeah, I think they, they generally, they had some girls come in who their sole purpose was to catalogue his letters. And in the end, he was so, so unbearable a personality that they would do that three days a week and then they'd give them, they'd break it up for them and give them other tasks because spending five days a week, every week with Prinny was too much. Too much. Yeah. yeah. He, was, he was such a strange, just to, as I always do, put it onto Wellington. But Wellington and him didn't really get on, but he was kind of asked to give him the guided tour of the battlefield of Waterloo and you can't really refuse the Prince Regent. And he gave it, and apparently the Prince Regent was absolutely cold, nonchalant, didn't really care. Then they went to go see where they um, kind of reportedly buried Uxbridge's leg. Uxbridge survives, and the Prince Regent breaks down in tears at seeing the burial of a leg, an amputated leg. So he did care, but in only about certain people or certain parts, or maybe it was just the aristocracy, or I don't quite know, but he was, it was a really strange anecdote. It's a slightly strange phrase to use in connection with that story. But um, I, I think the nicest bit about the Prince Regent and Waterloo was that he came to believe he'd been there. Mm. Uh, and, and Wellington didn't completely squash it. He sort of went along with it because it was easier and more polite to do so. Uh, and I love that. He forgot that George II was the last king of, 
of uh, England who went on a battlefield and uh, he thought he'd been there. Of course, we certainly would have lost if he had been, so it's just as well that he wasn't. <laughs> With no William of Orange, that was bad enough. Mm. Yeah, well, that was my yeah, blow. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was that William was of Orange, point. of course. Yeah. I'm not sure. Did he lead his troops, though? He fought like Billio and he hated Louis XIV, but was he actually on the battlefield? Who, William? William, yes, he was, yeah. wasn't he? I, don't, yes, he was. I just know that I don't think he George was. II was the last, apart from because George V obviously potters around, but I think the last one to lead troops is George II, isn't it? George II, yes, at um, Dettingen or whatever it was. Yes. But I know you're right, it would be nice to see um, the Prince Regent done, if nothing else, than to give it like the similar kind of treatment that Edward VIII got in the first season of The Crown, where you were just like, oh, I'm cringing so much watching this, but you've got him nailed. <laughs> um, and then I think, yes, there was one other question about writing for you. Um, oh, no, I like this one better, actually. First of all, they want to know, did you um, prefer playing Major Dunnett or Prince Regent? I think we know the answer to that. But if you could have played a third character, what, have you, what would you have played? Oh, that's too hard for me, I think. I mean, the, the answer to the first, as we've said, was that Major Dunnett was the better job and the Prince Regent was the better part. So they were quite equally divided. But um, I don't know. In those days, I just used to count my lines. I don't remember having much more of a sort of commitment to it than that. And also looking to how near the end you were. That was the thing. You would go to the end and then count backwards to see if you were still around. <laughs> that, that, was, that was my highly intellectual assessment of my roles at that time. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite funny because we Do get questions about characterization and how did you put yourself into the mindset of Major Dunnett? And, and the answer is you were Major Dunnett for over a year because of everything that went on. Um, I played leading <laughs> roles that took much less time. But um, I think with all of this, I mean, I did know quite a lot about the Napoleonic Wars. I think that was helpful because the kind of attitude of everyone and the whole business of life going on in Brussels and the Duchess of Richmond's ball and all of that stuff. These were themes that came up later in my work, in fact. And I had the ball in, in my version of um, Vanity Fair, but then also in my version of Belgravia. Uh, when they both, you know, in both of those, everyone charged off to Waterloo. So I was quite steeped in the whole thing. And that, I think, was quite helpful, really. I will ask you this last writing question because it is very good. So we all know that Bernard Cornwell is doing another sharp novel. Um, would you, if they asked you, would you do the script? <laughs> I don't know. I tend to keep these things separate, really. I mean, I'm now working on a series which is being shot in America. Uh, under COVID restrictions, which is quite a performance, I can tell you. Is but, that Gilded Age? Uh, that's Gilded Age. Yeah. And if that's, you know, if they do a second one, then I'd be engulfed by it. But uh, I mean, I, I love Bernard and I hope it's a great success and I'm sure it will be. Just to say, of course, we did have Nicholas Rowe on, who played Wellington in your series. So there was an extra, an extra Wellington on. He was in Dr. Thorne for me. Very good actor, actually. And then he played, he played um, Wellington for us later, yes, in, in Belgravia. I, I absolutely enjoyed watching it. Natasha said she loved Belgravia and enjoyed watching it. Oh, good. How nice of you. Thank you. 
Um, we've had lots of questions as well because we have obviously got the chosen men with us, or most of them. Um, this episode really did, we've discussed it a little bit before, it really did, um, you got to add background, didn't you? And sort of grow your characters beyond a couple of lines. Um, I look, Paul, your obviously famous answer for everything is army. Uh, someone wants to know whose idea was the um, bandana headscarf? Mine. <laughs> was it uh, a good thing? By the way, was it just more comfortable with the steady shackos on? What was that, Marcus? Did you just find it more comfortable to wear the other hats with the bandana, or did you just think style? No, no I, I just thought it looked cool. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Reason. Completely that reason. And I thought, well, we're all going to be wearing the same uniform, and that will be something that could be my thing. And I sort of had this notion that he was almost like a sort of Cherokee or something. You know, that, that was the vibe I was sort of, I, I felt he sort of had this kind of like um, Native American scout kind of vibe about him. Yes. Very cool. It sort of tied in with that a little bit, I think. Yeah. It's very gritty, the episode, isn't it? Um, Lyndon, is it the most gruelling one that you filmed? Probably because we did it twice. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, because it was, it was, it was also first year, first time for everybody out there. So it was, it was, everyone was sort of getting to know everybody and trying to get, you know, trying to get used to the situations, which weren't easy. Um, but then doing it all over again, going back out with Sean and redoing what we'd done before, um, was, was, yeah, it was, it was, it was difficult. We've got lots of questions, Jason, from Glyn, Rebecca, Christopher, all wanting to know. Um, how genuine you were in terms of your interest in the classics and poetry. How much of it did you read to get into character? Um, I must say I was more of a classics uh, play and theatre reader uh, at that point. And I really loved, um, I loved books about behind the scenes, funnily enough. Um, you know, story of Led Zeppelin's tour of this or... Tottenham Hotspur's glory years in 61. I, I loved those. About three pages long, right? <laughs> no, it's a really good book, actually. The glory years, I think it's called. Um, so I wasn't. My father is a poet, by the way. So, or was. Um, so really, I should have been into poetry. So I don't know. But, but no, I was never into poetry. I know that's one of the questions. And um, I had run, read some of the classics, but I was more of a classics theatre reader, mm. I would say. You mentioned the recollections of Rifleman Harris, uh, Benjamin Harris in real life, and that is a fantastic read because there's not many, I mean, he couldn't read or write like your character could, but it's so interesting to see uh, a first-hand perspective from a private soldier, born and raised in Dorset, has a terrible experience in the Peninsula War where men are killed next to him, uh, goes to uh, Flanders, gets malaria, and then is recollected um, in uh, I think it's Portsmouth in a hospital and then in Dorchester hospital. And I love it because it's where I was born. Uh, but it, it's really nice to get a first-hand account of somebody who's a bit more normal. You know, you know he's not going to make it an account of himself. And it, it adds a lot more to it to go, actually, yeah, there's, a, there's a little link between a real-life character who's normal as such. Where were you born? Uh, Dorchester. Because I live just outside Dorchester. I'm sitting in West Stafford right now. Oh, you're just down the road from my parents, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? If you could stop in and wave at the front door, he hasn't seen him in about a year now. Yeah. <laughs> but, but actually, I owe a lot to the recollections of Rifleman Harris because I read that mm. and I said, 
why don't I recall everything I'm going to do on Sharp, just in case Sharp is one day something big. So that's why I did a diary. That's why I did a, uh, um, a, a photo journal. And then later on, I did a video diary. So yay, Rifeman Harris. Yeah, you should do a book, Jason. So guys, if for the like Tim and Julian, this is a game. So Jason has written a book. Um, and there are some listeners that play Salky Bingo. Every time he mentions the book, they drink. So we make a joke out of mentioning it as much as possible. And actually, Hugh Ross has got fabulous at making him mention the book about 40 times in every episode, hasn't he? We'll just get one out now. It's yeah. From Crimea With Love, published by Unbound. And you can pre-order now, coming out in July this year. Oh, we've got a release date now, haven't we? It's moving forward. Yes. Unfortunately, on the 7th of July. So that, 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 that's a pint being drunk just then. So now we just have to go, Jason's book, Jason's book, Jason's book, and then they'll yeah. be completely yeah. paralytic within half of half Exactly. Of By the yeah. end of the show, presumably they're carried upstairs drunk. Yeah, Jason's that's the book. idea. That's what that's we it. aim for in each episode, just, just to get back at them, basically. There was, there was a plot twist at the end of, not the last one, I think the one before, where Lyndon revealed that he's writing a book. I think that's worth an extra drink. Yeah. yeah. That's just naked. You two with your swords, you know. Oh, I'm going to go and get my great uncle's sword. Absolutely. I think we need a, a sword off. What have you got, Zach? The 1803 flank officers. Yeah. The one that I was complaining to you the other day has somehow managed to corrode. see your sword unsheen? I'd just like to see Julian's sword, the actual sword, and not in the scabbard. Oh. Marcus is so glad you asked that, and Zach. I'd like him to take it out, basically. It's quite interesting, actually, because it's a blade that was only fashionable for a very short time. Oh, it's in good condition. Very good condition. It has this sort of funny widening at the bottom here. That would be for strength. So that's that. Thank you. Mirzi, just to catch you up, that sword was from what year, did you say, Julian? Well, it was, I don't know what year the <laughs> sword is, but it was presented to my ancestor by William IV when he was still Duke of Clarence in 1827. Wonderful. Thank you. Tim, show us your sword. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's the one that I had in the family for a long time. And then the Coldstream Guards got hold of me last year and said they had one of my <laughs> Uncle Arthur's sword. Uh, that They said, that belongs to you. So I went and collected it from the um regimental headquarters and carried it on the tube which was probably illegal but it's a nice wilkinson sword first green cap alex with our swords out yep swords. Uh, <laughs> hold on a sec i'm gonna get my swiss army knife out <laughs> <laughs> i seriously do have i have a nail file oh, great knife. <laughs> oh nice on bulbs <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, brilliant david t couldn't make it marcus he was going to. I think he's, he's working, isn't he? Uh, Kerry Shell, yes. Kerry Shell got a job on an audio book. And unfortunately, David Troughton has had COVID, but he's getting over it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I texted, oh, yeah. I texted Kerry to say, because uh, ever since, this is the funny thing about me and Kerry Shell, is ever since doing Sharp, we only speak to each other with a Russian accent. So when we, when we email each other, we hear Boris and I am Sergei. And this has remained the case ever since. So I texted him to say, clearly, you're just trying to get out of it. This excuse about doing audio books. He said, no, I'm actually, it's spelled with an E, actually doing an audio book on the weekend. <laughs>
Uh, the wonderful Michael Mears has joined us. Hello. Hello, nice to be here. Sorry, I'm late. No, it's a return of the triple M. Better late yeah, than ever. I'm working on that. I'm trying to get it down to a double. <laughs> and happy birthday, Michael. Michael was uh, turned, had a birthday last week. Happy yes. birthday. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? Hey. Now I'm 64, I'm sure. Absolutely. Don't look a day over 29. Tim Bentick, uh, that was that all started you and Kerry over the risk board, didn't it? Playing over playing risk. It absolutely did, yeah. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. I was saying earlier before you came, uh, there's a chapter. I, I wrote an autobi I was asked to write an autobiography, and there's a chapter about sharps, the sharps rifle in it, which features um, the risk board, um, <laughs> where we. <laughs> where Jason and I, we needed a large table um, yes. and, and it wasn't big enough in our room. So we went downstairs into the foyer where these two um, Russian guards were. Basically said to them, um, we needed to play a game of um, international, um, um, what is it? Um, um, conflict, a game which you appear to have recently lost. <laughs> <laughs> that table reminds me of the moment when we all decided that the food was simply too awful to bear and the and the someone or other one of the producers told the kitchen they must make better food and um as a result they didn't know what to do and there was a choice of four first courses and four main courses and i wasn't working the next day and nor was someone else i forget who and the two of us came down for lunch and all they could think to do was to bring us both all eight dishes so we had a table like that with 16 plates of disgusting food. It was all sort of cat meat with tortoise sauce, you know, <laughs> and, and completely inedible. Cottage's pie was one of my favorites that they were all trying to unload on us. Uh, and I remember they just, they didn't know how to make it better, which I suppose would be different now. I want to ask Zach, because Zach is a specialist in uh, military discipline in the Peninsula Wars. Um, how, how much would these scallywags in uh, Sharp's Band of Merry Chosen Men have actually got away with in real life? Is it realistic, the stuff they get up to? Ironically, they'd have got away with pretty much all of it. <clears throat> because everybody has this kind of perception that because the army, the British army at the time, was very heavy in its use of flogging, you know, 1,500 lashes could legally be given to somebody who, who was stealing or, or to murder, you know, these, those kinds of crimes. In theory, they might have been punished quite severely, but the reality was the officers knew that just like the crew were starving and, and really struggling for, and this is why you had kind of the Dimaji Bacon riot, if I remember it rightly, just yeah. as the crew were kind of going through those issues, actually the men on the ground during the Peninsula War were really struggling in terms of rations. So a lot of the stealing that they did ended up coming from the fact that they were going off in search of food in order to keep going. So as an officer, you didn't really want to punish your men for the fact that they were starving. So they turned a blind eye to a lot of it. So yeah, they'd have got away with the vast majority of it. That's good to know. Guys, you've been vindicated. Look at Can I read you um, a little tiny, very small account of us um, getting there, the, 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 the outward bound trip, our, the Pathfinder trip? Yeah, so is this, I've heard rumours of a slightly hedonistic flight to um, the Ukraine. I've I, I, seen a photo with involved a bottle of vodka. Yeah. I, don't, <laughs> I don't tell the truth. <laughs> 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 this isn't exactly what happened, but it, it, 
but because the thing is, I did actually keep a journal at the time. So one of the, you know, it's quite nice when you're writing an autobiography to be able to go back to stuff you'd actually written at the time because it, it's not just memories. Um, oh, there you go. Yeah. Right. So um, uh, the British Airways flight to Moscow is fairly uneventful. Then we changed to a different airport and a Russian charter plane. The Ilyushin, parked on the far side of the Moscow airbase of the Russian Air Force, smelled strongly of damp. The hold wasn't big enough to fit all the camera equipment, so they simply piled it up in the aisle and across the seats at the back. This created a kind of private cabinette that contained assorted newly met chosen men and other ne'er-do-wells. The pathfinders of episode one were on their way. When I say on their way, it took about an hour to get the engines started. And when they finally caught, huge clouds of smoke belched from the jets under the wings and the whole plane shook violently. Vodka seemed the only sensible option and the cabinet turned into the bar. Three hours later, we started our descent into Simferopol. Within 30 seconds, we had landed. Apparently, the captain was a military jet pilot whose technique for landing a plane was almost identical to that for vertical dive bombing. Jason Salkey, Trooper Harris, used the plummeting plane to demonstrate his skateboarding skills. The rest of us curled up and prayed, even the atheists. <laughs> It sounds like pretty standard uh, opening to a uh, trip to the Crimea with Sharp. <laughs> uh, what I love is those pictures on that plane. The first time we started seeing those, we couldn't work out whether that was mould and decay or a pattern on the walls. That was mould. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember best about our hotel in Simferopol was I went into my very pokey room and there was an enormous television which took up about half the floor space. So I thought, oh, and I tried to turn it on, nothing. And then I looked behind and the wire had no plug. It was just stapled to the skirting board. And I said, when next time someone came up from the hotel, I said, what is the point of this? It's, it can't work, it's just stapled to the wall. And, and she said, yes, but that's because when you go back, if you're a Russian, people say, was there a television in your room? <laughs> 
but that still meant queuing and then banging on the door. You know, you've had half an hour, mate, and all of that. Yeah. I remember. I remember very well queuing, and it was. And Sean was in the booth, and he was just sitting there on the phone, and he wasn't talking. And he was there for about three quarters of an hour. And it turned out that his mum had put the telephone next to the radio, and he was listening listening to Sheffield United. <laughs> yeah, we've uh, heard many, many times that apparently that was every Saturday. The oh, was it? And that nobody else was allowed anywhere near the phone. Oh, oh right. <laughs> for that period of time. I used to remember how recent mobiles are. Mm. Uh, I remember we got our first mobile in the sort of mid nineties because there'd been a horrible incident of some young woman who was attacked on the motorway and killed. And I, because she'd been walking to one of those telephones that they had sort of every half mile or every mile, I forget now. And we got a mobile, but even then it seemed kind of wild and only for sort of in extremist moments. Uh, and it wasn't really until the end of the 90s that they'd become at all normal. And now n none of us, you know, it'd be like being without your thumbs. It's mm. extraordinary how quickly mm. that happened, really. Well, also email. I mean, we couldn't even, e that first year we were in doing sharp, we couldn't even email our, you know, relatives. And... Uh, letters from home, I remember them well. My dad used to send me... Uh, cuttings from the you know the newspapers every Sunday like fo football matches West Ham you know uh, commentating on the West Ham and, and theatre reviews and all that stuff and interesting bits of news and I get a big wedge wedge envelope you know with all the latest stuff but yeah strange it was, real, it was a real lifeline wasn't it when we got the newspapers from home yeah but I was gonna say I was the first person to have a mobile on sharp in 1996 the four series um, and I remember we were in Turkey and I went, to, I went to Yalta for the weekend because it was quite close. And I left my mobile phone with Sean because he didn't have a mobile and came back to the most horrendous bill, which of course <laughs> yeah. we had to, had to share. But yeah, even Sean Bean didn't have a mobile back in 1996. <laughs> you said you had to share the bill? Well, no, no. So, so I, was, I was going to Yalta for the weekend to visit Natasha because Natasha and Daniel were there from Turkey, which was close. And, and there was no signal in, signal in Yalta, so there's no point taking it. So I left the phone in, in Turkey with Sean, even though he had, even though he had a, um, a hotel phone and a suite. <laughs> he still would, you know, because it was well, a I get it, but I'm saying, did he make you pay half of his bill? Is what I'm no, I got the itemized bill and I showed everyone, right, you know, because okay. in fact, everyone was using it because no one had a phone, so. <laughs> uh, we have got a brilliant question as well um, for Julian, uh, worded several different ways from seven diff several different people. How did it come about that you ended up one of the rare people with the two roles? Did you ask to go back as the Prince of Regent or did they come find you? No, I didn't ask to go back, but, uh, but the moment they'd suggested it, I was very glad to do it. Uh, I, I was slightly worried that they would make me look sufficiently different, but I, I needn't have because when I first saw the wig, uh, I, I realized it was like a sort of down market Elvis Presley lookalike show. Uh, and when I was actually having it fitted in the trailer, people were coming on and pushing in to see it and saying, oh my God, as they looked at me in this terrible wig. <laughs> so I knew it was a safe second character. And I remember after watching one scene, who was the girl playing the Wicked Countess of that week? It was um, Caroline, Caroline Langridge. And she, as I walked off the set, when they said right on to the next scene, I walked off the set and I walked past her and she said, hmm, very brave. <laughs> 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 
terrifying when people say that was a very brave performance. Oh my yeah. God, you know, you've really made a fool well, of yourself. Christ, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> but regarding Dunnit, Lawrence Edward Richard wants to know, do you think Dunnit would have come around to Sharp if they'd continued serving together? Well, I don't think he would have seen Sharp's potential because I think you need an event to shake things up to make everyone not see the people around them as they had seen them previously. And we know that in our own lives. If you're uh, not seen as a leading player and you finally get your break because someone's ill or something's happened or something's gone wrong on location and you get a chance, then people can see you in a different light. But they wouldn't have done that themselves unmotivated. And in private life, it's like wanting someone to see you as a romantic possibility when all they've ever seen you is as a mate. It takes some kind of event to shake that off. And in the case of Sharp, I don't think Dunnett would have seen Sharp's potential. I mean, if he'd been wounded and Sharp had taken over, then maybe that would have been a sufficient event, but something had to happen. We just, I'm just looking because I've forgotten his name, but um, we had him on because he was in Sharp, Jason, and he's also in Hornblower. And we were joking, is his name John or Nick? His, his role is uh, always Nick Jones. Nick yes. Jones. Nick Jones always dies to make room for the lead character. It's in Hornblower and it's uh, in Sharp as well, isn't it? Just gets shot in the leg um, with, and, a, and a, a silver dollar is, saves him that, mm. that's in that scene. He gets shot on, and hits the dollar. Um, so also as well, Christopher Sorensen wanted to ask Tim, uh, for a character we barely get time to love, Hmm. Um, is there anything that ended up on the cutting room floor that you put loads of effort into or that would have shown us a, another side or more of your character but it didn't make it in? Yeah, I saw that. I don't, I don't think there was actually. It was quite unusually. I think everything that we shot, um, you know, got, got, got used apart obviously from the, the, the McGann. I think I have a feeling that my death with McGann was better than my death with Sean. I was sort of felt that I'd done it better. Um, and I do remember walking towards when we were, we were about to shoot it with Paul um, and walking along the road and he was there, there was Paul McGann, you know, very famous actor. And, 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 um, and I said to him, I said, this is my first death. I said, have you, have you ever died? And Paul went, oh, loads of time. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, God, a seasoned dyer here. And I've got this is my virgin. I'm a virgin dyer. Um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, no, I don't think I, as far as I know, there wasn't anything left. Jason, a quick kind of techie question here, because I'm thinking back to Gold, where you all shot the, the, the script and then you had to do a different script because of kind of the legal issues and paying everybody twice. Why didn't that happen for Rifles? Because they'd shot, um, they decided to, they, they'd done no, um, they'd shot no scenes from Gold at all, whereas we'd done a couple of scenes each from e Eagle and Rifles and they decided that that was the one they were going to cut loose. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's strange. Yeah. No bummer. Well, this is a good one for the chosen men because you did spend a lot of time in each other's pockets. Helen Meyer would like to know: there were any awkward moments where you all got up each other's nose or had a row? Um, the way Paul's laughing. <laughs> no, of course not. Any handbags? Handbags. Yeah, I think there were. <laughs> 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 I remember once I sort of uh, uh, I, I asked 
Darrow maybe if he would uh, perhaps turn his world, world service uh, radio down. Brave which, man. Which was a fairly, a fairly constant uh, soundtrack in our tent. And I'm not really a sports person myself, and uh, but he was listening to that a lot. And uh, I think he, I think that I think the phrase is "lost his shit." <laughs> <laughs> I am quite devastated that they. I don't think you've got the footage anymore. That that fight scene between Sharp and Dara, that the one, the version of him fighting Paul, because their size difference. I'd love to have seen that. He's like treble the size of Paul McGann. Yeah. What is Dara doing now? Does anyone know? Is he well? Is everything going well? He's very active on Facebook lately. He had lots, lots of memes. So he must be well. Is he, is he working in um, television and films? Yes, apparently. He, um, not that long ago, he did an episode of Vera. Oh, right. I mean, if, if that means anything. Um, okay, so... By the time we got to this scene, Paul had knackered his knee already. That's right, yeah. So, so they had to have a, a, a body, a, a double for Paul, who looked really like Paul. It was amazing. Do you remember him? Uncanny, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, so in, in the, and they also had a stunt double for Dara. I'm going to find them in the pictures in one second. So a lot of the takes were, they go to, they, they, mo <laughs> <laughs> they motion to punch, cut, and then they put in, Dara's double or Paul's double and, f and from there. Whereas four months later, the fight between Sean and Dara in Portugal with not a stunt, stunt double in sight with um, Greg Powell as a stunt uh, coordinator, that was the most vicious fight I've ever witnessed in a, in a, a movie, both on screen and while rehearsing it. Wow. So, uh, it was incredible, the violence and the, the punches and the almost hits. That, uh, that happened and, and it was amazing. So yeah, the, the contrast between those two scenes, the one we see here and what we shot later on, is just uh, marked incredible. In fact, behind, behind Dima at the back there, I think that's the dying room, uh, um, Tim. Behind that little, that straw stuff, that's where you died. Oh, in, right. In that little room back there, yeah. Oh God, yeah, 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 yeah. By the way, apropos of um, Paul and Dara, I saw a film the other day, which I hadn't seen for the best part of 30 years. I think I last saw it before I was ever on Sharp. Uh, I was with Nail and I, and of course, Dara threatens Paul, famously, in, uh, yes. in the Camden pub, calling him a perfume ponce. Thought, oh, yes. God, Dara, and there's Paul. Set that day. Jason, a lot of the fans always ask about the footage, but I think most of the footage is normally destroyed afterwards, isn't it? So. The, the stills that you've got in the video diaries, is that going to be the only images we've got as Paul as Sharp, is it? Well, Paul mentioned that someone pulled footage out, moving footage out when they started getting into the legal fight. Someone had footage, didn't they? Yes, that, that was me. I went, um, um, if, we get to the, if we get to the question, what's your biggest regret on Sharp ever? This, this will probably be it. Okay, um, Jason, what's your biggest regret on Sharp ever? <laughs> By the way, this is Paul McGann's stunt double. Stunt double. That's oh, pretty right. good, huh? Yeah. Not as pretty. Not as pretty as Paul. <laughs> no, one well, was sorry, sorry, it's an Italian to see one saying. Paul, much pretty. Um, oh Christ, sorry, sorry. I, I don't know where the picture's gone now. I'm sorry. Um, anyway, right. So I was called into. Um, I was called by Paul McGann, just before the fifth year, and he said, "Can you go in and speak to a lawyer, who is um, Natasha?" Yeah. 
who, who is um, uh, suing Malcolm Craddock, sharp film, blah, 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 blah. And I said, yeah, what the hell? I can go in and talk. Uh, that's fine, it's fine, fine. And um, in, in the meeting, we, uh, I saw, we talked about what happened, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he showed me some of the grainy rushes from when Paul hurt his knee the third time. Remember in Eagle, we'll be climbing up that hill and through that thick gorse bush. Oh, yes. And, and we were made to climb up to the location before shooting. And, and basically, Paul hurt his knee on that climb up. And then we found that later we could have been driven up to the spot where the camera is. And anyway, so, um, uh, so yeah, so that's, why did I mention that? Yeah, so I saw that footage in a grainy Super 16, whatever it was uh, on the screen. But what happens, they were shooting on Super 16 millimeter film and they wouldn't develop everything anyway. So that's why there wouldn't be a lot of uh, Paul McGann footage around. So yes, I have seen a bit of footage. And also um, Paul Trussell has a bit of video footage with Paul McGann as Sharp as well. What's your biggest regret? Biggest regret, yes. Oh, thank you, Natasha. <laughs> yeah. I Natasha, love it. Natasha's way of saying, get to the point, darling. Yes, thank you. I'm so good. So, um, years on Sharp have destroyed my brain, obviously. Um, so, after the meeting with the lawyer, I thought it was all over, and I was about to go, he says, oh, by the way, can you just sign this? And I was like, oh, well, okay, well, yeah, what the hell? Sign on the... A week later, I got a letter from Her Majesty's, whatever it was, a seriously scary looking letter saying, you have been summoned to be a witness in court against Malcolm Craddock, Sharpville, Muir Sutherland, la 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 la. And a few weeks later, I came to negotiate my final year contract with Sharp, um, Sharp's Waterloo, Sharp's Revenge, Sharp's Justice. And I was only in Sharp's Waterloo. I was cut out of two episodes. Oh, mate. They claim it wasn't because of that. But I have a feeling it was. So that's, that's one of my biggest regrets. Although I was helping Paul McGann, you know, I wanted to help Paul McGann. That's, that was my intention. So I wasn't thinking about myself at all. And that's, yeah. that's probably one of my biggest regrets. I've gone back and watched it, Jason, after you, you told me that. And I think there's two points in Sharp's Waterloo where you're asked a question once by Sean and once by, um, you know, uh, John Tams. And I think both times your response, your script response is to smile and laugh. So they, they actually, it's noticeable that there's no lines given to you. And I was, now you've said it, I've started to pick up on it in that episode. Well, no, I, was, I was always going to be in Waterloo. No, that's just my enigmatic acting. You know, what's your first name? <laughs> Too good. You didn't um, need that. But um, what happened to the case? Did right, Okay, good question. Right. So uh, about before we, before we left for um, you, uh, Turkey at that point, they settled out of court. Oh, okay. So I never had to go into, into anything, but I was, I was identified as an insurrectionist. So that's my biggest regret. Although yeah. I wanted to help Paul, but I didn't know, I'm stupid. I should have known if I'm signing something, I shouldn't have signed something, it was mm. my fault. So Paul, speaking of regrets, because we've had the, the usual couple of questions uh, that come in about uh, you leaving, but one of the, I love this one. Uh, I notice on Facebook you're now an accomplished artist, which we mentioned at the beginning, and that you've done a Harris portrait that makes Jason look a lot more handsome than he is. Uh, were you doing art back then? No, I don't think I was. Oh, well, there we go. There he is again. That's my you son. weren't doing art back then, I can tell you. You weren't. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for making me look handsome. Yeah, but did do you did you regret leaving? Because apparently you give a rather enigmatic response uh, when anyone asks you, and just say, "Not now, Jezebel." <laughs> you, if you could go back, would you have stayed around longer? 
Well, I mean, I suppose, um, I, I mean, I was very, very ambitious back in those days, you know, and um, I, I'd been offered um, a part in a Mike Lee play uh, the following year. And I'd always wanted to work with Mike Lee. Well, I'd worked with him a little bit before and and he'd always sort of said, oh, you know, one day we'll, we'll do something, you know, bigger together, which, you know, it's quite something really coming from him. And um, I had the opportunity of doing this play. I was offered it. And um, at that time, there was no... Uh, there was no certainty that there was going to be um, any more sharps, you see. Mm. Um, so I did the play. I mean, but then when it went on year after year, and I sort of thought, oh, that would have been nice, you know, um, to have been going off and doing sharp every year. Um, I would have, I would have liked to have done that, but I didn't regret it really. I don't regret it because I got to work with Mike Lee for quite a long time, and on one on something that he that was devised with him. And in a lot of ways, you know, it was acting wise, it was sort of the making of me really because of the work, I, you know, working with, working with him. And he's just so good if, if you're a young actor and you, you know, he's just very good at bringing out the, the best in you and making you think about things that you hadn't thought about before. And so certainly don't, I certainly don't regret it because as I say, I had that, I had that sort of several month uh, period of working with Mike. So, um, but yeah, I miss, you know, I was missed going back out and I, you know, obviously I was really, really good mates with Jason and good mates with Lyndon and, um, and, and, and other people, you know, Tim and Julian and stuff. But yeah, I regretted that, but um and I regretted the money. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I regretted the money. The, the the yearly little bit of splodge of money would have been very very nice. But uh, there you go. Did you um in your oh. head ever construct like where you think tongue went and what he did? Someone asked. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you know he's he was a sort of he was a kind of gypsy like character, wasn't he? So um, he. I know that uh, I've discussed this a bit with with Jason and uh, and J Jason has the idea I think that he maybe goes off and becomes an artist which <laughs> which I like. Julian, what about you? Well, I mean I think I was taken on to play a part and I played it and I, when I took it I thought it meant a week in Simferopol in fact it meant a year out of my life but uh, and obviously because of that, I got more interested and more involved in everything and I knew all the people better and everything. But, um, you know, when you're an actor, you're always on the move. You're a, it's a kind of gypsy life and you can't really fight that. I mean, you're taken on for as long as you're taken on. You sign on for a play, it runs a week, it runs two years. You never know what's coming next. Mm. And so I think you just, well, when I was acting, you just sort of stay loose. You get to the end of the job. If you've enjoyed it, you're sorry. You go home, you wonder what's coming next. I, I, I don't think I ever made it much more complicated than that, really. Uh, there's a brilliant question for Julian that I've just spotted scrolling through here uh, from Mark Williams. Uh, as an actor and a writer, how much do you get the hump when an actor changes the scripted line? <laughs> I get an enormous hump, uh, <laughs> almost immediately. Uh, I mean... Very occasionally they come up with something better, but they usually change them simply to make them their own. 
so that they can feel that it belongs to them. Mm. Americans do it more than the English, actually. Uh, and what is annoying is that a lot of, well, all humor is as much to do with rhythm as content. So if you put in one word too many, the line ceases to be funny, even though the meaning hasn't changed. And that's when it gets annoying. But on the other hand, one mustn't be too precious, you know. We're all just trying to get through it. And, and I think there is a moment where if their performance generally is working and they're putting over something that's making the show good, then I think you just have to suck the rest of it up, to be honest. Mm. It's a good question, though, isn't it? Something that you've slaved over um, and then, then an actor comes along and decides they can do better on the spot. There must well, be occasions where you want to throw them. You get one, you'll be making a series and the others will very occasionally say, oh, is it okay if I say this instead of that? And it's fine. But there's always one who's <laughs> got, who wants to change every line. And by the end, you just want to take out who? a contract. Who? <laughs> I want to know who, name names. <laughs> no names, no pack drill. Yes, no maybe, maybe when we, Turn the recording off at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I will. I will say there was one writer on Sharp that Tom was absolutely verboten that we change any lines, and that was Charles Wood, who wrote Regiment, Waterloo, and Company. And if you wanted to change a line, that Tom was like, "No way, no way, no way," because it was kind of written as a sort of poetry the way Charles Wood wrote, um, even though he wrote terrible lines for us, of course. <laughs> what you say, Lyndon? So never had me like Yeah, exactly. Charles would uh, barely get us anyway. Lucky, so yeah, that was some, the lucky. one writer that uh, Tom was really precious about, as Charles would. But also, what they create is they create endless, needless repeats. So they change the line and use the word although at the end of this scene. And in the next scene, which is shot four and a half weeks later, the first line starts with although. And that didn't happen in the original script. And you just think, why can't you just read your scene in context? <laughs> they never do. Anyway, I'm giving myself away here. I shall now <laughs> gather up my skirt and go back to my chair. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's cathartic. I think just, just let it all out, Julian. It's fine. Um, while, we got we'll Julian, <laughs> while we got Julian, Natasha asks, when, when, when was the first time you wrote a screenplay? And what was it? The very first time I wrote a screenplay was when I was making a really terrible series of Sherlock Holmes in Warsaw, Warsaw playing London. And um, it was for an American producer called Sheldon Reynolds and his wife, um, who later became famous for being the girlfriend of Klaus von Bülow and getting him off, uh, Andrea Reynolds. Uh, she and I became very friendly and she got her husband to let me write a script and they shot it. And although nobody watched this series, that was the first time I'd ever done it. But then I didn't do it again until I was producing a show for children's television on BBC. And we'd spent the money, we'd got the scripts written and, it, and they didn't work. And by then all the money had gone and we needed someone to rewrite it for nothing. And of course, you know, I remember the BBC producer saying, what fool would do that? Well, I was that fool. And was, then we made that show and it did, did pretty well. And then I was commissioned to do Little Lord Fauntleroy. And then I was we were off. Say, wasn't little, I remember Little Lord Fauntleroy being the first thing I remember you 
you write yeah it, and then that won an international yeah. emmy and suddenly i'd become this kind of writer yeah. which kept up on me i mean before then i thought my plan b would be to be a producer but anyway you know we never know what's coming <laughs> i know uh, this room is full of writers uh, who haven't got two pennies to rub together historians so uh, that's a sad story for us uh, there is a question here from alan hunt but i wonder if that is actually just zach pretending to be someone else would you consider writing a napoleonic film that shows a soldier's life like the retreat to karuna um, and then i think Part B is probably will you will you use Zach as your historical advisor? I, don't, okay. I think it is a genuine question from someone called Alan. I yes, I um, I love the period actually. I mean, I've been in the business long enough never to say never. Mm. And uh, when I get to a period when I have no work lined up, then who knows what comes next? I I try not to book in too much so that you know what's going to be the next ten years because I think. It's rather dull. I think after a bit, you should not commit and just try to keep it open. But mm -hmm. a series, of course, is a bit more of a challenge because you're expected to commit, it will in America, to sort of five or seven years, whether yeah. or not it runs that long. You have to make that commitment at the beginning. So it's difficult sometimes to see over the top of things. A lot of us have been saying for a while that we'd like to see another Hornblower or a Master and Commander or something in that vein, haven't we? Mm. No, um, there's been no proper sale film no. since Master and Commander, and that was at the very beginning of CGI. Marcus is quite anti-CGI, but no one's done it sort of since... Well, it's like nearly 20 years now since someone mm. put a huge budget into a naval um for for what is a hugely popular period as well. The other day saying he he wouldn't be adverse to doing another Master and Commander. Yeah, and Yoan Griffith. Yeah, Yoan Griffith, of course, said that he would because Hornblower the stories go on and on, don't they? Yeah, he's in the present climate because there are no decent parts for women, and they're just tacked on. They're artificially shoehorned into these all-male plots. And that just doesn't fit with the way things are blowing at the moment. That's yeah. true. Uh, well, I've, do you know what? I've been sketching for ages now, uh, like uh, the idea of a 10-part thing from Emma, Emma Hamilton's perspective. But it's, you know when you've got a pile of projects that you really I've got a, be I great? A film, I, I wrote a film about Emma Hamilton. Mm. And that is a wonderful story. And that whole triangle of Hamilton, Emma and Nelson is very moving, actually. A, ra a rather extraordinary film. And of course, it's a different film from the one that was made in the 40s because Hamilton was essentially in love with Nelson, as was Emma, which was something they wouldn't have touched with a barge pole back then. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it could be a very, very interesting film now. But, you know, as always, it's one of those frightfully good projects that you have in your bottom drawer waiting for the right producer. And you, you do know, of course, that Nelson, I had to do this for a Sonne Lumiere with Tim Hardy, um, that Nelson uh, had a very strong Norfolk accent. And so, and I played Nelson. And I, because I have uh, associations with Norfolk, I, I, I did it with, with the Norfolk accent, as he did have. And I was I attacked for saying that you're taking the piss out of Nelson, because clearly Nelson spoke like that, which he didn't. <laughs> I don't think he did. I know, but sometimes the truth doesn't play as well as a lie. Especially if all the money coming in is American. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't want to hear a Norfolk accent. They do. don't want to hear Norfolk accent. No, 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 no,
no. It's quite <laughs> funny watching an American try and make out um, someone with a Geordie accent. That's oh, any, anything. Right, because by that period, the standard London accent, which was essentially the accent of the court, had become, even earlier than that, had become standard. And Walpole, for instance, was teased for his Norfolk accent in Parliament. And the idea that they went on with regional accents much later, Nelson was mercilessly teased for his. Uh, and, and certainly by, you know, a little later in the century, people did everything they could to lose them. Yeah. I think it would be great as well, whatever was made like with Nelson in it now, if he was like, the tiny little guy he was in real life as well, if you've ever yeah. seen his uniform. Tiny bloke with a Norfolk yeah. accent doesn't fit. Five foot there. six skinny little bloke with a Norfolk accent. No. It's not the money. just cast Tom Cruise. <laughs> I've got a fiver I can put into the production budget somewhere if I scrape around at the bottom of my handbag. Uh, what have we got uh, left on our questions list? Yeah, Jason, you were asked. Uh, yeah. I think we could put this question to everybody, what their favourite scene was. I, I suspect... Julia will say the one I'm in with lines. <laughs> but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do mine first and then everyone yeah. can do this. Okay, so um, I've got written down here Torre Castro, the storming of Torre Castro and the raising of the gonfalon at the end. That was quite exciting. Lots of elements, a lot of buddy stuff. Me and Mickey pushing a, a, a burning carriage and Paul Trusser getting shot in the leg and, you know, oh, lovely stuff. Um, I also like the Dunnett's rifle massacre. Dunnett's rifles massacre scene. That was pretty serious and wonderful. It's a, it's a whole setup. Um, the rifles load. Rifles load. When we were all eating, but that's because we were hungry and that was quite. But I think. And you got real food to film that. And it's scene, real food, yeah. There was and we've been in Crimea for four months, <laughs> and this was like grilled chicken, tasty. It was like incredible. <laughs> but I think my favourite has got to be Harper versus the Man in Black where he shoots the guy with the ramrod through, shoots the guy and then shoots the guy with the ramrod and then blows off the guy's hat. And then the whole scene where we're expecting, expecting Harper to get busted and they don't bust Harper. Sharp just says, fall in Harper. And they're saying, what well, do you want to give him an honor? Uh, um, a Sunter's character, do you want to give him some honor? No, he just did. He let me fall in again. So that, that's probably my favorite scene. Harper versus the man in black. Excellent. Paul, yours? Um, well, I, I, I mean, I, I really liked filming that scene where uh, where uh, he finds the guy asleep, and I creep up behind Sharp, and and uh, there's a, there's a, I go I actually go soldier um, who goes there. Actually, there is a, a slightly humorous bit of that, which is you see me, I go soldier who goes there, and what happened was I did the soldier wasn't there. And I went in to do some post-sinking and they said, oh, just, just watch this. And they showed me that scene. And what it happened was if I go up behind Sean and before I say who goes there, I, for some reason, perhaps I was nervous. I just go like this with my mouth. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I just make this bizarre <laughs> like that. And I go, who goes there? And they said, I said, God, that looks really weird. And they were like, can you think of maybe something you might say, you know? And I said, well, how about, how about soldier? And they went, all right, let's try it. Soldier. So I said, <laughs> in all these different ways. And they, these, these blokes really cleverly sort of lined it up with my 
my, my sort of, <laughs> I'm going to wind it through and watch that. I hope you, Butler, kind of mad. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so that soldier is a kind of post sync thing, so that's quite fun. Um, oh. But no, I like that scene. I like the fact that I get the drop on Sean. That was quite nice. I think I'm the first chosen man to be seen, which I suppose was nice. First and, chosen man to speak. To speak. First and, speak, yeah. um, and and I like I like he could have had you shot, Sergeant. I, li- I like I like that. I mean, I know it's a bit egotistical to choose a scene with me in, but uh, there you go. Go for it. Own it, Lyndon. Own it. <laughs> do you do you remember any of the scenes that you? Egotistical as well. I think it's got to be it's got to be being made a chosen man. Yeah. When when uh, saving uh, Sharks Life, I can't remember the bloke who I shot. But I just remember Sean saying to Harper, give him yours, Pat. And uh, I get the little white stripe and uh, become a chosen man. And all went down here off. Are you guys like a little clip? I just, this is my only experience to draw on is doing Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and being one of the brothers. And the fact that we were like a little mafia behind the stage because we did everything together. And that, were you like that, the chosen men on set? Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. Yeah, very much so. And as a, can I just say, as a postscript, you know, to that little, uh, did we all get on stuff? We we did get on really. I mean, we niggled each other tiny bits from time to time, but on the whole, we 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 got on pretty famously. And we were in a, you know, because conditions were tough. It, we, you know, you bond with people in that situation and stuff. So yeah, no, it was. Hey, that's a great photo. This was the last, um, the last take in the Crimea. So we were like uh, deliriously happy. And the person who take, took the picture couldn't hold the lens, the camera shade uh, properly, but it's still a great shot. Brilliant. Michael, what's your favorite scene? Well, I love Rifles Load as well, uh, because we shot it twice. I mean, Stanford, famously, with Paul McGann, very first day of filming. Um, and then ultimately in, um, in Portugal. Am I right, Jason? Yes, um, I, I'm not sure we, sh- did we shoot our bit eating? I think we only shot the Toffs eating. No, we must have shot our bit. Yeah, 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 yeah we yeah, must yeah. have, yeah. Because yeah. the, they found the monastery in, in Portugal, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, when naturally think about one's own stuff. Uh, obviously, I love my two songs, so I got to sing in Rifles. And then John Tans decided, quite rightly probably, that he should be the only one that sings in the show. But I love <laughs> it, because John, John was, you know, John helped me with... with um, you know, gave me the first song um, uh, in Rifles. And then afterwards he said to me, um, he so subtly put me down. It was beautiful, actually. I, I may have told this story before. He said, you know, um, you've, got a lovely, you've got a lovely voice, Michael. Really lovely voice. That was lovely. I said, well, and I said, oh, thank you, John. You know, because uh, coming from you, that's a real compliment. I said, yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed singing, you know, and, and, and people have told me I'm a good singer. And I think he said, no, I didn't say you were a good singer. <laughs> Julian, what about you? Your favourite moment on set? Julian, oh, so is is it your death scene with the exploding guts? No, I love doing that scene, but, but thinking about watching it through the mists of time, I remember the storming at the end, thinking that they'd managed to make it look very good given that it was a television film and not a film film, uh, which at that time was a more meaningful distinction than it is now. But, um, you know, the truth of the matter is, I haven't seen it for 30 years. And so um, 
you know, my memory of it is dim, really. And Tim? Well, same as Julian. I mean, I, you know, I love watching the whole series as much as I, I love re reading the books. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, then, yeah, same thing. I mean, in terms of standout memories, it's the, you know, it's the things that I was in. And I have to say that facing a cavalry charge like that uh, is, is, is something that, you, you know, you don't train for, you don't teach you how to do it at drama school. Um, if you'd made the decision to become a, you know, a lawyer or something, you would never have got that. So, I mean, just the, uh, the feeling of standing there, apparently on your own, facing a, a, up in their stirrups, leaning forward with the swords pointing towards you, screaming blue murder, and you're on your own holding the sword. That's not acting then, that's survival. And that is, I probably, I might die. Um, and that, so that, 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 that stuck it, that's, yeah, exactly, stuck in my memory. A, a little bit of continuity, in fact, that they slashed that, um, that uniform um, across and then they put the, the halberd back, they put the leather thing back down the front of it like that. So there's a, there's a slash underneath it, but the leather thing isn't cut. We did have a question as well about tiny point the, of continuity there for you. <laughs> yeah, we did have a question about the makeup for those scenes as well. How much work was needed on the wounds that you received? Oh, I think oh. it just you know just a lot of a lot of Kensington gore. I think really. <laughs> Can I just say on the, on the lines something? I mean, obviously Sharp's known for its its action, and but obviously the war, war is sad um, and it, it reminded me of something Michael was saying on a previous podcast that some of the nicest lines are well away from the action and the nicest scenes I love I think it's an eagle but where you've got all the chosen men in the inn and they're trying to they're talking about their backgrounds and where they all come from and the broken down scribbler and the, the drunk but I think for me for rifles it's where Sean and Dara corner Michael and ask him for his pitlock it just adds so much to his character, you know, it's hard to trust a man who asks for a pitlock, sir. It, it's really nice. It's just the, all these characters, these rogues, Wellington scum of the earth, much quoted comment. It gives them so much more character and flavour that they're not just all men stood in line doing what they've got to do. They've got a bandana and I think John Towns wears a feather and Perkins is fresh faced and young, and there's so much to it. Yeah, <laughs> locking, picking the lock on the on the book cover. I don't think that's an old version of the book. Um, it's, it's really nice. I really like the pick lock scenes. I think it adds a lot more to the characters there. This is a cover from. I was doing a convention in America, and someone had this on their table. It says it says penguin there, but I, I can't. I don't understand how it's penguin. It should be Harper Collins. But that's obviously the box with all the old papers in it. I don't really, really want to put Julian on the spot and ask him about casting shark members in Downton Abbey yeah, well, and <laughs> why it didn't happen. <laughs> That's well, a clean question. It really happened. <laughs> I, was, I was number two for Chamberlain in the final series. I was very miffed not to get it. Very miffed not to get it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm bewildered that you didn't get it. I am too. <laughs> so, so are lots of my friends. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually still waiting for to hear back from Julian for Prince and the Pauper, actually. Um. <laughs> what for that? Yes. His father. I think so, yeah, yeah. And I remember, yeah, I remember it quite well, actually. Yeah. But don't worry. Horrible. Let it go. <laughs> well, I'm sorry I failed you, chaps. Not at all.
There we go. Ah, oh my goodness. There's still time. There's still time, Julian. We're all, we're all available. We have a question from David Branfield. Jason would like to know, have you ever considered putting down your memoirs and maybe writing a book about Sharp? It's funny you should say that, actually. Um, I decided to write everything down and it's coming out in July the 7th in book form. It's called From Crimea with Love. And if I could explain the title a little bit, um, um, I feel that the three years in the Crimea really gave Sharp its look and its feel and it helped to bond the main characters. That's why it's quite a good thing to watch. And also I found my love in the Crimea, my, my voice in the corner there, Natasha. <laughs> So that's, that's the reason it's called From Crimea With Love. I wanted to call it Life at the Sharp End. Oh. But the, the guys that the publishing thought, no, 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 that's, that's no, no. They didn't want anything. They didn't want obvious Sharp in the title, even though they're trading in on all the fans of Sharp, of course. So they didn't yeah. want that in the title, yeah. So, so From Crimea With Love came up in the meeting, and I kind of like it, actually. Mm. There's one from Jordan Pettit. I think we could just go around the room if we finish on this one. Yeah. Uh, wants to know, you've kind of all, perhaps not Jason, uh, Julian and Tim, because but you guys, chosen men, have become known for Napoleonic stuff. If you could pick any other historical era and go and live in it in something, what would it be? Start with Jason. Um, you mean a movie, uh, a yeah. fiction? Yeah. yeah. I any would like to. Yeah, I would, I would, um, I think I'd like to do World War Two if we're talking military. Uh, have you ever World done War World II. War Two? No, uh, I did Memphis Bell. Okay. Yeah, so a little bit, but I was an American there. Um, and if it was a war, I'd love to do a 60s, something set in the 60s with sharp suits and, you know, stuff like that. Mm, Paul? Mm. I think World War One would be my choice. It's, mm. it's such a... I mean, it's just so sad, isn't it? It's just so much sadness. I mean, that's a bit glib, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Just the best I can come up with just off the top of my head. Dude, I've just picked my thesis and it's uh, suicides and self-inflicted wounds in World War One. I've got to do it. Having said that, I've just read, I'm just like nearly finished reading um, a book called In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Oh, um, yeah. It, about the mur um, some murders that happened in 1959 and that is super interesting as well and that and that sort of america in the 50s that that's that's cool too that'd be interesting alex yes i'll have to tell you sometime um so there was a con you know you know hot on conscientious objectors in world war one yeah a very, very sad story of you might want to include in your dissertation of one of the guys who was sent to france and escaped um execution by the skin of their teeth um, and was sent home to do 10 years penal servitude instead. Uh, anyway, so having escaped death in France, he was, he was so depressed, uh, he, he suffered from depression and, and threw himself in a river. It was very sad indeed, you know, uh, not long after he got back and it just seemed so, as Paul said, full of sadness. Um, stories yeah. in one. Uh, as I'm talking, uh, the period. Yeah, go ahead. Where would you take your wonderful Victorian profile? Oh, Georgian. Georgian. Because I look great in the frocks, and um, <laughs> costume designers have told me I've got great cards for the stockings, and uh, I love wearing those breeches and frock coats and, uh, and, and the wigs. And um, if it could be set in Bath as well, that'd be really nice. Um, <laughs> that would do me, yeah. Uh, I would say so, uh, Bridgerton then, but I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. No. Uh, so. <laughs> I, I enjoyed seeing you, Michael, in BBC Ghosts. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was sort of Georgian period, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah we did. Nice. Yeah, no, yeah. nice stop there, yeah. Well, Michael, Michael and I did Twelfth Night together, 
a few years after Sharp, and I think you wore, I think you wore uh, stockings in that because, of course, you were Malvolio. Yeah. And you wore yellow stockings. I was Agu Cheek. And uh, you're one of the funniest pratfalls I've ever seen on stage. Pardon? Your pratfall is Agu Cheek. One of the funniest things I've ever seen on stage when you collapsed. My 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 banker, as you called it. Like a tree. <laughs> I'd show us your calves, then, Michael. This is you can't not dangle one in front of the camera now. Serious? You serious? I don't know what state that is. Yes, we're serious. Right, right. You can't big it up like that. And you know, Julian's watching. Maybe he's oh, got a Georgian production coming up with calves. Outstanding. That's outstanding, <laughs> isn't it? Fair enough. Tim, where would you go in history? Well, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm just getting my calves out, actually. Yep. <laughs> and Julian, what so about you? Well, I think if I was going to live in, live in the past, I'd be born in 1830 and die in 1910, but only if I had very good teeth. That would be the criteria. <laughs> yeah. But for, but for and teeth. I think I'd probably go for the late 18th century because I also like the frogs. I I'm just, oh, he's just made my day that you didn't, nobody said Tudors. We're all bored with the Tudors. I think Vikings, I, I'd actually fan, I fancy being a Viking. I've always fancied yeah. that. <laughs> you have to uh, let yourself go don't you this scene, I've yeah. only watched a few episodes of it but it just seems that those guys didn't have to shave, wash, cut their hair do anything for the whole five no. seasons they were on that like us on Sharp <laughs> guys thank you so much for joining us today to relive filming Sharp's Rifles with us and talk a little bit about uh, what I think is you're particularly fond of it as actors um, and participants so thank you very much for sharing Thank you, Alex. Thank, Thank you for being you, our host. Thank you, Alex. Thanks very much. Everybody. Thank you, Alex. Lovely Cheers. to see you. Lovely to see you, guys. Really, Bye. really good to see you. Bye. Lots Bye, of all. And before we push off, Marcus and Zach created your very own segment on History Hat if people want to hear more about Sharp and the era and the Peninsula Wars. There's nothing wrong with the pun. Yeah, so um, Zach and I have set up Sharp Shooters for History Hat. And there's basically us uh, saying that this is... Um, Sharp's Rifles is the beginning and there's a, there's a missed gap in Bernard Cornwell's uh, books, as much as I love them. Uh, we last see Sharp in Sharp's Prey leaving Copenhagen, a really interesting kind of spy novel with loads of subterfuge. And then we see him in the retreat to Corona. So um, Zach and I, as huge, I think fair to say, Sharp nerds, but also Napoleonic historians, uh, we want to kind of fill in some of the gaps and pay, pay tribute to the history and weave it into the real life and the series we love. So, yeah, we're going to do sharpshooters. Well, we are doing. We started. Um, yeah, for you've done the first one. So you did the origins of the Peninsula War. the origins. So tune in, listen to that. And then we're going to take themes each month, uh, or maybe more frequently, depends how we get on, but definitely each month. Uh, we're going to be doing Gorillas next. We're definitely going to be doing a Waterloo special. And uh, very kindly, Professor Tony Pollard of Waterloo Uncovered has agreed to come on and talk about the archaeology, which is changing the way we view uh, Waterloo. It's, it's rewritten some of the myths and the and history. And we've got loads more planned that we will take themes. So the gorillas that we're looking at, you know, we've got Teresa. We, we've got some of these uh, characters who are more cutthroat, literally. And are they based on real people? Are the gorillas all the glorious history? Or are they all bandits? Or is there a bit of both, everything in between? So yeah, we're going to do a bit of that.
Brilliant. And this is the second Tuesday, uh, second Thursday of every month, isn't it? That this goes out. So people just need to hop over to Podbean on History Hack or you can view it on our YouTube channel as well um, if you want to hear more. Great. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book.